there was a young man, an upwardly mobile professional who had just purchased a brand new Hummer. He decided to test drive his new toy to see how it would perform. As he pushed the Hummer to its limits of speed and agility and control, he found one obstacle too much for even his Hummer. High above a cliff, he lost control and headed over the edge. Fortunately, he had the presence of mind to jump out just before the Hummer launched into space. In the process, his left arm was caught in the door and torn off at the elbow. As he lay on the rock, stunned, another driver stopped and rushed over to see if he was all right. The young man was crying in pain and agony. My Hummer, my Hummer, I lost my Hummer. Seeing his physical condition, the other driver said, hey, don't worry about your Hummer. You just lost your arm. The young man's eyes widened in shock as he looked down and found it to be true. Then he began to moan again. Oh no, my Rolex, my Rolex, I lost my Rolex. Well, while well, we may smile at this story, not true to my knowledge, it's a caricature of a materialistic young professional. We also realize that this attitude of values exists in America today. Two weeks ago, we started the series, and we talked about God comes first, the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, you have, shall have no other gods before me. We examined the three functions of the law. This is the review. The reason the Ten Commandments were given, number one, was to regulate relationships. We got this on the notes. Notes, here we go. We don't rehearse this part. There we go. Regulate relationships. Number two, to maintain and protect community. And number three, to guarantee justice. God's top 10, it's about relationship. The first four deal with our relationship with God, this vertical relationship. The last six deal with the relationships with people, the horizontal. And when our relationship with God is in order, the vertical, our relationship with people fall into place in the horizontal. These relationship lessons govern how to relate properly with God. God established that relationship and says, I am your personal God. When we sing, my God, it's because God is our personal God. We talked about other gods that are primarily invisible and internal. They have to do with attitudes, affections, and desires. We listed six of the most prevalent gods in America today. Self, sacrifice, sex, state, science, and society. This message is entitled American Idols no substitutes, and it's about how we take those attitudes, those affections and desires, and we turn those into visible images or tangible objects, things we can make, see, possess, or play with. In the Bible, these are called images or idols or substitutes for the one true God, the God of the Bible. Now, remember, external images and God's people worship are an outgrowth of an already idolatrous state of mind and heart. What we see may or may not be indicators of those substitutes. Only God knows the heart for sure. An important distinction to note, in your discussions with other people, they may claim to worship God as they conceive him to be. Benevolent father, intelligent designer, the force, the creator, a friend. All we need to make the distinction of, the only thing we need to say is, I worship the God of the Bible. This means that we worship the God who is revealed in the book, 
that we call the Bible, the Word of God. The Bible is our standard for faith and practice, not philosophy, not religion, not human reasoning, not human experience, and not subjective feelings. I believe in objective truth, the Bible, the Word of God, and all throughout history, people have worshiped other gods, not the God of the Bible. And that's what we find in America today, American idols. I'd like us to turn to the second commandment. It's in Exodus 20. It's on page 60 in the, in the Bible in front of you. Page 60, Exodus 20. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 today. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's start with Roman numeral one, idolatry, the history and practice. Let's look at the context of idolatry, the history and practice. The first commandment forbids the worship of any other than the one true God. The second commandment forbids the worship of any representation of the one true God. All people worship something or someone. Some are religious, some are not religious. Being religious has nothing to do with idolatry, unless, of course, one's God is religion. The first commandment deals with the object of worship. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. The second is the mode of worship. The first tells us not to worship any other gods. The second forbids us from worshiping God in the wrong way. Now remember, these commandments were given to religious people who all seem to worship some god Let's look at the history of idolatry. Where, where did this worship of gods or gods come from? People had ideas in their mind who God was. They looked around, they saw the marvels of nature. They saw trees and animals and the sun and wind and rain and thunder and lightning, the stars and the moon. And all of those things spoke to them about God. They said something about God. Since they did not know much about God, they used representations or comparisons to describe God. These were images of their thoughts about God. And these people then made images of God in many forms. And so they would have images of all these parts of nature. Joy Davidman writes, idol makers were trying to say what they thought about the nature of God. They were inventing what we call theology. Unfortunately, the idols moved from being representations of God to being God. It's an important distinction to make between the idol maker and the idol worshiper. The idol maker was trying to give shape to a half-formed concept of God. The idol worshiper worshiped the image itself. Let me give you an illustration from today. The producers in Hollywood give shape to the images we worship, whether it's a Julia Roberts or Leonardo DiCaprio. Fans then worship the image they've created. In other words, fans then worship the person. Professional sports create the image of a Michael Jordan or, or a Brett Favre. Sports fan then worship the person. And we're in danger of idolatry in church settings as well. The cross or the crucifix symbolize what God has done through Jesus Christ. We see a very predominant one right here. They remind us of God and it reminds us that God 
it reminds us of God that can, can be a great aid to worship for many of us. But God is unseen. God is spirit, a person we cannot see. We need setting and we need symbols and places to remind us of God, but we can't worship the symbols themselves. Visual symbolism has been part of the church from its founding. It's always been, whether it's paintings or stained glass windows that teach stories, etc. Different, different things that remind us of that. Maxie Dunham writes, the problem comes when the symbol, the reminder, becomes a substitute. Then it becomes an idol and it takes the place of God. I don't know if you remember the lyrics from the popular song in the 60s, which says, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car. There was this reliance on a statue of Jesus or whether it's a crucifix or something, and, and it becomes a, an idol or it becomes idolatry. Traditional forms of worship, liturgy, hymns, or worship songs, or style of music can be a god. If they become the focus of our worship, then they replace, they take the place of God. We point to traditionalists and say they worship hymns, and some do worship hymns. But those who advocate contemporary music can make the same error, and they can worship alternative rock. The forms cannot replace God, no matter what the form takes. There are no substitutes for God. And no matter what the form is, don't worship the form, worship God. Many people do not worship an image of who they think God is. Many may have no religion or a vague interest in the spiritual. Therefore, people will manufacture their own gods without realizing it. And some of the gods are visible and easy to identify, but some are not. But before we look at the images, before we look at examples of American idols, I want us to talk about the why. Why of idolatry? Why, why does idolatry happen? Number two, idolatry, the motivation. There are two major motivations for idolatry. The first one is selfishness, letter A, selfishness. I am the center. I'm the center, it's all about me, okay? I'm here to serve self first. This is self-worship. And if I make my own God, then I can make it exist solely for my benefit. It's very convenient. It's for me. Hedonism or, or pleasure-seeking elevates self. It's based on the illusion that I'm the center of the universe. It all exists for me. Now, when a baby is born, it lacks, it lacks the capacity to see from anyone else's perspective. Their entire life, the baby's entire life centers around me. Okay, it's about me. It's about my needs, my feeding, my diapers that need changing, I need to be held, it's my comfort, it's my convenience, my happiness, it's all about me. Well, the hard lesson we all have to learn is that I am not the center of the universe. <laughs> I am not the center of the universe. Everything does not exist for me. Now you have the other extreme, many give up in life and cynical despair reject that there is anything unique or special about every person. They either forget or deny that each part of this cosmic universe finds its meaning in its connectedness to the center of the universe, which is God. So we are not the center of the universe, God is, but we find our meaning and understanding of who we are in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're not gods, but we're created and intended to have a personal relationship with God. 
Selfishness states that no matter what image or substitute I have for God, it, it, it exists for me. Some theological beliefs are very selfish and self-centered. The supra-faith theology believes God exists to meet all my needs. I just use the right formula, the right words, and God has to do my bidding. And we see that. It's idolatry. Selfishness, I am the center. The second motivation for idolatry is control. Control. I am in control. Now, if, if you're like me, you like to be in control. I, I don't like surprises. My staff surprises me or something happens or, you know, it's like, don't, you, you know, you can't, don't surprise me. I want to be in control here. And when you surprise me, the unexpected, I'm not in control. Okay. I'm in control. One writer says the essence of idolatry is its attempt to control and enslave deity. Who's in control of my life, me or someone else or something else? And that goes to the root of, of human, human nature because we desire independence. We want to be the master of our destiny. We're afraid to lose control. We don't want to lose control. Therefore, we hang tightly to our life's steering mechanisms and give God input only when we get lost and need direction or we crash the car and need help. It is so hard to give over control to God. I mentored two teenage daughters through the driving process. Some of you know where I'm going with this. I can't tell you how many times I sat in the passenger seat with them learning to drive, and I wanted to step on the brake, or I wanted to step on the gas, or I wanted to turn the wheel, or I wanted to honk at that stupid driver that was next to us, whatever that was. However, I had to give up control for them to learn to drive. Giving up control of our lives is similar. It's a constant struggle. Not the, about a control of a car, but the control of our lives. And, and God says, no substitutes let me be in control. It's hard. Those are just two motivations for idolatry, selfishness and control. Now let's move on to American idols, the substitutes, the substitutes. Number three, idolatry, the substitutes. With selfishness and control being the two primary motivations, what might our substitutes be? What are our gods? Now, this is not exhaustive. It's just illustrative because we can find a lot of other illustrations or other types of idols. If you want to control your life and destiny, what comes to your mind first? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Money. Money. People would say, if I only could win the lottery, if I could only inherit $10 million dollars, why do we want all that money? Because we think if we have all that money, it would give us control. Control over my destiny, my retirement, my boss, and my debtors, and my life. I'd have control over that. I could buy anything I want. I could go wherever I want. I can do anything. I could buy an island in the Caribbean or down by the Florida Keys. I can do whatever I want. We live with the illusion that if I only have enough money, I can control my life. I'll have no worries. However, there are always things beyond my control. Even if I have all the money in the world, health, for instance, or happiness, the time of our death, or circumstances, things that are beyond our control in relationships. Why do people gamble or buy lottery tickets? To support public education? To give to the poor? To tithe to their local church? No, most of us, if we were honest, want the money for ourselves. If I had all that money, I wouldn't need God to supply all my needs, or so I think. 
One does not need to be wealthy for money to be a god. In fact, some of the people who strive for love or worship money the most don't have any. They're poor. And some who are very wealthy do not worship money. It has to do with the internal state of heart. We must be careful not to judge, because only God knows what's going on inside. Some create a tangible God, money. There's nothing wrong with money, a lot or a little, as long as it isn't a God, as long as it's not a substitute for God. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Substitute God, number one, money. The second substitute is ego, ego. Letter B. Some people spend their whole life working endlessly to prove themselves. Why? In a twisted sense, they believe that if they finally achieve success and prove themselves, it will validate them as a person and satisfy their ego. Ego is, of course, self-centered. It's self-centered. We do not find our validity and success or accomplishments. Our intrinsic value is given to us by God and is discovered in that personal relationship with God. And the sooner we learn that, the sooner we hold to that relationship with God as the most important relationship. A third substitute is fame. Fame. We want to be known by a lot of people. I'm going to ask some questions. Who, who's Wally Moon? Who is Larry Bird? Who's James Gardner? Who is Cassius Clay? Who is Fran Tarkenton? Who is Michael Jordan? Who is Michael Jackson? Britney Spears? Justin Bieber? You know, we can name names. These are names of famous people. Some of them we remember, most we've forgotten. What good is fame? Fame has been called recognition to the point of being annoyed everywhere you go. And you discover that. Our girls have spent the last 10 years or so down in Los Angeles, and oh my goodness, it's just crazy down there in Hollywood, the, the annoyance of everything. No privacy and anonymity. Fame can be an American idol. Then there are objects. Objects, letter D. Objects in a car. It could be a, a car, a Rolex watch, a house, a boat, toys. Now, I, I dare say most Americans today probably worship gadgets instead of images. And talking about the latest flat screen TV, computer, video game, smartphone, PDA, whatever it can be. These can be idols, material objects. Things that we rely on to bring us happiness. And, and they do make us happy for a while. But happiness without contentment is empty and devoid of joy. I am happy with my iPhone. But does my iPhone bring me happiness? No, because they keep coming out with another one. I mean, just keep, you know, and they all have new features. Now it's a face recognition thing, and, and I'm not sure what's going to happen if, if uh, I get up and I look really old one day. Is it going to turn on because my face may change overnight? Who knows? Then there are idols, letter E, of activity. Americans love to be busy. In fact, many people measure their worth by the state of their calendar. Importance is defined by a full schedule, a frenetic pace of activity. Now, we ought to be busy, we ought to be active, we ought to be productive. No one wants to be lazy, but activity can actually be a god. And this includes work or recreation, whether it's fishing, hunting, skiing, golf, camping, hiking, swimming, or biking. Many spend their time in playing sports 
or attending sports events. Youth sports, which can be very healthy, can become a god, taking over every waking minute of a family's life, traveling from game to game, season overlapping season, all in the pursuit of something good while ignoring God. Good, but ignoring God. There are activities of shopping, eating out, or entertainment that never takes a break. Entertainment is one of the real big ones. Now, do we rely on any or all of these activities as our primary source of meaning or happiness? That's a question. Are these our primary source of meaning or happiness? If we do, they are idols. They're, they're substitutes for the real God. Remember, all of our activities can be healthy and productive, even fun. They only become idolatry when they replace God. Idolatry does not lie in the idol, but in the worshiper. Now, the final idol that I'm going to talk about in America today may surprise us. That's the idol of church. Church. Whoa, I thought church was good, you say. Well, so is money. So is activity. When church takes the place of God in your life, it becomes an idol. We have church buildings, church programs, church activities, committee meetings, musical productions, outreach events, all the activities of church. Is God at the center or is church? We become so adept at doing church that whether God is involved or shows up or not is incidental or peripheral. The church exists for God, not God for the church. Joy Davidman writes, I have fallen into the last and subtlest trap. I bow down to wood and stone in the shape of a church building. Through regular attendance, through handsome financial contributions, through raising salaries and redecorating the church, improving the, the, the musicians' techniques and encouraging the foreign missions, I expect to be saved. To put it bluntly, I've forgotten that the church itself is not God. So easy to confuse the means with the end, and yet if the church is anything except the means to the knowledge of God, the church is nothing but a bore. Perhaps that's why it so often is a bore, she writes. When the church becomes an idol, a thing mysteriously holy and powerful in itself, then the goal of religion becomes getting people to church. The act of crossing the threshold has the magical power of saving them. Whoa, church has a God. Do we turn the means of worshiping God into an end itself? Means and methods, style and volume, becoming more important than the act of worshiping God. The spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, fasting and prayer, are they in order to worship God or have they become a God themselves? The church. Now the final section of the second commandment commands a warning and, uh, contains a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. Number four, idolatry, the warning and the promise. He says, I am a jealous God. That doesn't sound good. Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Yes and no. No. There are two sides to jealousy. There's a positive side and a negative side. The, the positive side of jealousy is protective. Protective jealousy is not an emotion, but it's an activity. Okay? It's an activity. It's an active word. God values our relationship with it, him so much that he guards it and protects it. I talk about this in 
premarital counseling when I talk to couples getting ready to get married. In a, in a marriage relationship, we must practice this positive aspect of jealousy, actively protecting the valued, exclusive relationship with our spouse. We are to carefully guard and preserve it jealously. This jealousy is not an intolerance of other people. It's an exclusiveness for which marriage was created. We must come against any threat that will undermine the exclusive, pure, and holy relationship we have with our marriage partner. It's a lifetime commitment with one person, a man and a woman, I might add. Now, the negative side of jealousy, that's a, that's a whole thing altogether. The negative side of jealousy is selfish, possessive, and controlling. It's really a cover for self-love, not love for the other person. And it can be expressed in a marriage relationship as a controlling, stifling bondage that gives no freedom or trust to one's spouse. And we've seen that. There's a destructive, negative side of jealousy that tries to control. It's selfish, not selfless. Well, the jealousy that appears in this passage is the positive side of, of jealousy. God is a jealous God because he is protecting his people from loving other gods, from worshiping idols. Why? Why? To keep us from fun and freedom? Absolutely not. God's one and only desire is to preserve his exclusive, holy, pure relationship with us for our best and his highest good. This jealousy is grounded and rooted in selfless love as God's desire is that we live full and productive lives, life abundant that glorifies him and works for our best as well. Remember, if we have that vertical relationship in order with God, all the other parts of our life will fit in place. Now, because of the seriousness of this commandment, God issues a warning. It talks about jealousy and issues a warning. And this, the first of this is a generational curse. Generational curse, letter A. After stating, I'm a jealous God, he says, punishing children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Now, the results or consequences of sin, especially idolatry, are like a pebble you throw into the water and the concentric circle moves out and it begins to affect everything in and around that center. Maxie Dunham writes, this cannot mean that innocent unborn generations are going to be punished for the sins of their fathers. The doctrine of individual responsibility is stated over and over again in both the Old and New Testaments. However, it does mean that future generations will suffer consequences of their predecessors because there's a connection, a solidarity, a unity of the human race. Ezekiel 18.20 states this, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. Families sometimes reap the consequences of their forefathers for three or four generations of those that hate me, he says. And we see examples of this every day. Dysfunctional families with verbal abuse, sexual abuse, drug addiction, alcoholism. Families dealing with pornography, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, and perversion. Some families pass on the consequences of materialism, witchcraft, or just overt idolatry. All of these practices can carry horrible long-term consequences, perhaps, to the third and fourth generation, if they continue to practice them. This includes idolatry of all forms, worshiping other gods. Our children 
reap our system of values and priorities, right and wrong, morality, immorality, and the only power that can break this curse is the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, accepted as atonement for our sins in forgiveness and justification. So you don't have to live with that. That breaks the curse of sin when Jesus died, shed his blood. In contrast to that, we have generational blessing. Generational blessing stands as a promise in Exodus 26, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What a, what a contrast. The phrase thousand generations doesn't mean, doesn't mean thousands of people, or thousands, but thousands of generations. It would be myriads of people or countless or limitless. It, it describes the limitless extent of God's mercy and grace. Walter Kaiser sums it up nicely. He says, the effects of disobedience last for some time, but the effects of loving God are far more extensive. Our children and our children's children and their children and on and on can reap the benefit of God's love. When we love God first to make him first and have no substitutes, the blessings go on and on and on and on and on. The general issue of blessing, of course, culminated in the coming of Jesus, the ultimate demonstration of God's love as he died, shed his blood to break any and all generational curses once and for all, for all people. American idols, no substitutes. If you are wrestling with idolatry today or wrestling with the consequences of someone else's idolatry, you can be set free. You can be set free. God paid a high price to restore the relationship with people. It's a relationship that demands exclusive devotions. And if you've had other gods or substitutes, the steps are to turn away from those. It's called repentance. Turn to God. Ask God for forgiveness. And be restored in relationship. So that he, once again, is the one true God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a guideline that is for our good, for the good of culture and society and every way. You've created us to be in relationship with you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would again speak to us, that, God, you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would affirm us. Lord, I pray that if, if those are are here that are, have, been, have, been, have been wrestling with uh, a generational curse or something in their past, God, that they would realize they can be set free from that. There's no reason to carry that. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue, continue to set us free to be the people you've created us to be as we worship you first. And you pray this in Jesus' name.